0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed, this is Greg LeBlanc and I'm here with David Hand, who is Emeritus Professor of Math at Imperial College in London and also the author of a number of books, the most recent of which is Dark Data, Why What You Don't Know Matters, and the previous book, which I read a while back, is called The Improbability Principle, Why Coincidences, Miracles, and Rare Events Happen Every Day. So, David, I teach courses in in data and decisions and data science, and a lot of this education that we provide to decision makers is really all about helping them to understand how subjective understanding of probability can steer them wrong. And so we try to get them to understand statistics in a a more objective way, but they still need to have some kind of intuitive grasp of what's going on behind the scenes. And I found this book, The Improbability Principle, to really cover a lot of the same ground that that I like to talk about. But of course, it's it's much better written. It has some fantastic examples, and you collate all of these different principles into taxonomy, which I found fascinating. And so maybe we could start off by asking this question, what is it about humans as probabilistic reasoners? I mean, you mentioned that we would have all gone extinct at some point if we had failed to recognize patterns in nature. So we are by our very nature kind of superstitious creatures and superstition is nothing more than folk scientific method and animals are superstitious so this mechanism that we have for understanding probabilities in the world understanding causation in the world should we be proud of it or should we be you know a little critical of it i think we spend a lot of time criticizing it but at the end of the day it's it's probably pretty good mechanism at its heart
1: yeah our ability to sort of recognize patterns in nature is, as you say, what stopped us from going extinct at a very basic level. We detect a sort of movement in the grass and think, aha, when that's happened before, it's often meant that there's a tie in there. So I'd better, I'd better be careful. So I think our ability to recognize patterns is what has kept us from going extinct, but also it's enabled civilization. And indeed, over the last couple of hundred years with the sort of scientific revolution, we've begun to formalize our ability to recognize patterns and to attempt to take an observed pattern in nature and say, look, I can explain that in a simplified term through some sort of, I don't know, a scientific formula or something like that. So science is, is an attempt to formalize, to simplify the really complicated empirical patterns that we see in the world around us. As far as probability is concerned. Yeah. I mean, the world is a horribly complex, buzzing place, all sorts of things going on. And you you have to simplify it. You find that when this occurs, often it's followed by this, but not always. And probability is an attempt to sort of formalize that, not always, but often kind of thing.
0: But we're not very good when it comes to probabilistic outcomes. We tend to have these stories and narratives where one thing either leads to another outcome or it doesn't lead to another outcome. One of the Most interesting speculations that you made was that when we transitioned from thinking about the gods to thinking about God, luck and chance kind of took a back seat, right? Because, you know, in the old days it was. The way you would explain stuff is maybe, well, this God happened to win out over this God, but when we have a, a single monotheistic universe, everything has to kind of make sense and has to be more deterministic. You sort of mentioned this sort of as as an aside, but I thought it was fascinating speculation.
1: I think that's right. There are systems of gods like the Norse gods where exactly as you say, they're gods. Some have responsibility for different sort of domains of human life, but they intersect, they overlap at the edges. And so they can conflict and fight with each other and when they do that exactly as you say uh, one of them will win and that can explain sort of unexpected events chance occurrences bad luck all that sort of thing but as you move away from that to one god well that one god is perceived as being in charge of everything it doesn't make sense to say this god is sort of arguing with himself or herself sort of thing so i think that's right that probability magic and so on as well took a back seat when in some sort of parts of the world, people shifted towards the notion of a single overarching God.
0: Yeah. And so what that means is that if you win the lottery, it means that there's something special about you. And and of course, if you get hit by lightning, that also means there's something special about you. And it's, it's more difficult to take this approach that, hey, somebody's got to get hit by lightning, right? And somebody's got to win the lottery. Why not me, right?
1: That's a a very interesting point. I don't think I'd thought of it that way about whether that led to a sort of lack of acceptance of chance and so on, whether that sort of transition meant that people were more seeking for a justification, a causal explanation, whereas in the past they could just accept that, you know, it happens sometimes. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I think that's a very interesting conjecture that maybe people sacrificed certain understanding of chance because of this move. Yeah.
0: But then it sort of stimulated a real hunger for causal explanations right Then we really want to know like what is this mechanism exactly if it is me why why is it me like how did this thing work and you keep coming back to carl jung and i thought that was interesting because he is someone who found meaning in, in everything if <laughs> if there's an event it had to have some kind of meaning and, and you kind of take the wind out of his sails a little bit because you say well if there's a bug banging on the window. It's because there's bugs that bang on the window. If you have a headache, it's because guess what? You probably have headaches. And I think that what you're saying is that someone like a Carl Jung is engaging in a very selective use of data, right? They're selectively remembering specific examples and ignoring kind of the, the base rate. So this idea of the base rate fallacy is something that we all succumb to.
1: I think that's exactly right. As you say, the bug taps on the window and he thinks it's something special about that bug and him ignoring the millions of other bugs around the world, which over the course of that day also tapped on windows. It's a a sort of search for meaning for me, as it were, or him in that case being special. So it has happened to him for some reason. Things don't have a, a reason in that sense. There are so many things going on that some things are bound to happen.
0: Right. And so we as humans, we don't really have a good sense of probability. I spent a lot of time talking about things like the hot hand fallacy, right? And how we have a sense, okay, we know that randomness exists, but we think that we know what it looks like. We recognize it when we see it. But in fact, our views of of randomness are, when we try to replicate randomness, it's obvious (laughs) that we're trying to be random. We just seem to lack that capacity to behave randomly, to spot randomness, to understand patterns that that don't have patterns or that have kind of deeper underlying probabilistic patterns.
1: That's absolutely right. If you ask somebody to create a sequence of random digits, then they will typically have too few pairs of digits occurring together or sequences of digits occurring in ascending order, that, that kind of thing, because they see a pattern there and think, ah, a pattern can't be random. I won't have two fours next to each other because that's unlikely to occur failing to recognize, yeah, it's unlikely to occur, but you go on long enough and you're going to see lots of them. So I think they don't take that into account.
0: Right. I just actually did a program with some corporate executives around risk management. And the title of this event was called the Black Swan event, right? So we've all been hit with the coronavirus and we've been hit with the financial crisis. And it seems like we're on the receiving end of all of these disasters and calamities. Is this just an illusion that we're just much more aware of things happening than we were in the past? If you lived in a small scale community of three hundred people and, and someone was hit by lightning, that would be a major event. But if anyone in the world of eight billion people is is hit with lightning, right, it's front page news and, and so we, you know, we're dramatically overestimating the probability of these sorts of things.
1: Yeah. I think the financial crisis and the COVID pandemic, in some sense, some people saw them coming, a pandemic. There was a recent film just before the pandemic saying, what if, and so on. I think people saw those, but there are other events like, as you say, being struck by lightning or one of your friends, whatever, being struck by lightning or winning the lottery. And we're just not very good at assessing that. We think, wow, that is absolutely incredible, failing to recognize in those cases that <laughs> if you have enough opportunities for something to happen, enough people playing the lottery, enough people around the world, even though there's a tiny probability that it'll happen to any one person. If you've got enough people, it's almost certain to happen to to one or more of them. And then, of course, what we tend to do after it's happened is draw attention to it. This guy got struck by lightning. What's the chance of that? Well, yes, the chance of that guy getting struck by lightning is very small, but the chance of someone getting struck by lightning well, it's almost certain. And it, had somebody else got struck by lightning, you would not look at the first person, you'd look at the person who got struck and say, wow, what's the chance of that? So we have very selective sort of mm-hmm. view. Psychics take advantage of this this sort of attribute of human psychology by making lots of predictions, and then after the fact, drawing attention to the ones they got right. And indeed, even without then drawing attention to it, which ones are you going to remember? You're going to remember the ones they got right. You're not going to remember the others because there's no reason for you to remember those. And they capitalize
0: on that sort of phenomenon. And this is sort of a, some kind of selection effect, right? it is. In both of your books, you talk about what we call the replicability crisis in science, right? Or the file drawer effect about how the kinds of discoveries that rise to public attention are the ones that seem to be the most dramatic. But these are also the ones that tend to be withdrawn or, or refuted with a higher probability, right? Is this a new phenomenon or is this something that we're only beginning to recognize, right? One of the examples that you talk about, which I talk about in my, my classes, is we think that autism is on the rise. We think that concussions are on the rise. We think that sexual harassment is on the rise, but probably it's simply the reporting probability has gone up or the way in which we categorize these things has changed over time. So do you think that When people talk about the crisis of science is, do we have any way of knowing whether this is a a real crisis or is it more likely a good sign that we're policing this stuff more aggressively? We're identifying flaws in the data more readily. Yeah, that's
1: very nicely put. I think that's right. I don't think it's a new thing at all. In fact, Charles Babbage in the 1830s wrote a book about the crisis of science in Britain, where he identified some of these sorts of problems. So I don't think it's a new thing. There is, of course, a lot more science going on now, so there will be more cases like this, but I think we also, we also understand it better. And I think that's a big contributory factor.
0: Yeah. I think in the the dark data book, right, you really emphasize that bias is something which we sometimes tend to forget in the world of data science, right? So in in a traditional statistics class, it's all about inference. It's all about moving from the sample to the population. And so we spend a ton of time talking about all the different ways that your sample can be non-representative, right? And you have some fantastic examples, right? You talk about the 1936 election, you talk about polls. I hope we can dive into a lot of those different examples, but a traditional statistics education would include a lot of cautions around bias. But in the new world of data science, where we just have massive amounts of data, we think, oh, well, if we have more data, then we don't have to worry about bias anymore. Do you see this as a dangerous trend? Because I saw that you do a lot of work with companies, you, you do a lot of consulting and so forth, and you're at the heart of a lot of these big data decisions. Is this a problem in our educational system and the way in which things are applied?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely, it's a very real problem. Statisticians are intrinsically conservative and they're taught, check your assumptions. Is it really normally distributed? Are the things really independent and so on? I think computer scientists and machine learners, on the other hand, tend to be more adventurous. This has various consequences. It means that the machine learner might make a great discovery while the statistician is still thinking about shapes of distributions. On the other hand, it can also have the disadvantage that Give me an algorithm a machine learning algorithm throw the data set at it i'll get a number out they can fall on their face because if it doesn't conform to what you expect if it's not properly selected from the population your conclusion could be just completely invalid so i think both sides are needed as it were but i think it is a real issue and it wouldn't surprise me at all if in the not too distant future we saw some major fiascos arising from big data which has just been sort of thrown at an algorithm, predictive models or whatever have been built, failing to recognize that the data are subtly distorted in some way and do not properly represent the population to which you want to make generalizations
0: or about which you want to make predictions. Right. So hopefully we can dig into this. When people, I think in the general public think about bias, they're thinking about racial, gender bias. And that is of course, an example of where bias is at play, but bias is a much larger phenomenon in statistics, you talk about kind of administrative data. This is kind of like you don't have a conscious strategy for deciding what kind of data you want. You're kind of collecting data for one reason and then later you're analyzing it for another reason. How big is that problem?
1: Yeah, I think this is a real problem. I mean, it's a problem that statisticians are familiar with in certain contexts and in certain areas like non-response in surveys or dropouts in clinical trials. And they've developed strategies for coping with that. I have to say that the characteristic of the missing data, and hence the distorted set of data that you have got, is known in those cases, you know which people are on your sampling frame that you didn't manage to ask in the survey, and which patients have dropped out from your clinical trial. So in some sense, that's quite easy to deal with, relatively easy, I should say, because you know what you haven't got. In other cases, and the really tough cases are when you're You've collected your data, a big data set like you referred to earlier. It may be a big administrative data set, all the credit card transactions run by a particular credit card company, for example, and then you don't know what you might be missing. That's tougher. So, for example, if I'm running a retail operation and I want to recruit more customers, what I'd really like to know is how customers behave so that I can put tempting offers out on the shelves. And to do that, I'm going to build a predictive model. What will tempt customers to come to my shop? But I've only got data on the customers who already come to my shop. And the other customers are probably a bit different. They've already chosen not to come to my shop, for example. So I've got a slight problem. My data set is distorted. I want to build a model which includes the other customers, but I haven't got those. So I've got a biased or potentially biased data set or distorted data set. So tackling that problem is a deep challenge.
0: Right. So I think in, in one case, the clinical trial example, suppose you're trying to figure out the efficacy of some kind of diet intervention, and then you see a bunch of people drop out of the trial. That's a known unknown, right? You quote Donald Rumsfeld, the great statistical theorist, right? You say that's something where we know they've dropped out. And exactly. You know what we do with that is a different story, but at least we know that there's some missing data. The second case is where we decided to only lend money to certain people and then we're going to somehow use that data to try and make inferences about who we should lend money to when there might be all these people out there we do know that we did not give credit to those people so at least we're aware of that but you also mentioned examples where unless you have some domain expertise you wouldn't really know that there's missing data so you mentioned hurricane sandy and I, i love this example because here if you didn't understand what a hurricane was and you probably wouldn't know that certain cell phone towers might have been knocked out and then you might infer that people seem to be perfectly happy during a hurricane because all their tweets seem to be fairly positive. Yeah. We talk about lurking variables all the time and you cannot back out knowledge about lurking variables from the data itself. You have to kind of have domain expertise. By emphasizing the data science skills and kind of downgrading domain expertise, does this somehow lead to inferior decision-making? Do we need to kind of rebalance the domain with the stats?
1: I haven't heard it put that way, but I think that's absolutely right. An effective data science project is a team exercise. You need people who actually understand the algorithms, the statistics, and how to extract stuff from data. You also need computer scientists who can manipulate the data, can search through it effectively, can order it effectively. And you need domain experts, because I'm sure that most consultant statisticians can tell you horror stories about, if they're honest, how they'd misunderstood aspects of the data, and that has led to misleading conclusions. I can remember a situation from early on in my career. I spent 10 years working at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, working with a variety of psychiatrists, pathologists, all sorts of people of that nature, and I can remember talking to two psychologists. They'd come to me saying, can you help us analyze these data? And I had Long conversation with them about what they were measuring, how they were measuring, and so on. And they had 78 measurements. And right towards the end, I was young at the time, and I said, how many cases were there? They only had two people, but each were measured multiple times. That cast a completely different perspective on what was going on. My ability to generalize from those two people to the population of people with that illness was severely constrained. So I think you need to understand the data. And you need to communicate, I think, as I say, most statisticians can tell you horror stories about how a project has gone wrong or risked going wrong because of inadequate or lack of understanding of the data. You need teams, domain experts, statisticians and machinists and computer scientists, I think, and they have to communicate with each
0: other. So you mentioned the space shuttle Challenger. There's a famous case in business school that we use all the time on unsuspecting MBA students and also on executives where we present them with the same data that the scientists at Morton Thiokol had in that critical moment prior to the launch decision where they are given data on the number of failures in relationship to temperature, but they're only looking at the cases where there were failures and the situations where there were no failures was in a separate data set and it kind of works like clockwork where the people very rarely ask for the missing data. And once you introduce the missing data, it completely changes the nature of the relationship. And it goes from being a non-significant relationship to being a, a very significant one. And so there's a case where I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist, right? But you do have to have this kind of fluency with counterfactuals. Is this something that can be taught to kind of practical decision makers, this idea that there's a certain common sense around how to interpret numbers? I think it can. I think what one needs to do is sort of inculcate
1: a skeptical attitude so that people, when presented with data, ask sort of questions like, well, where did the data come from? Did you collect it? What process did you go Mm. through to collect it? If not, what's the provenance of the data? How do we know we can trust it? What might be missing? All those sorts of questions. So I think this actually is a a rather sort of fine line to tread, because on the one hand, one likes to demonstrate to people that statisticians, data scientists and so on can do really amazing things in building models, making predictions, extracting understanding from data. But on the other hand, you you need an element of caution, skepticism about the data, because let's face it, any large data set is likely to have some problems, measurement error problems, duplications, missing values, entire missing records. It's likely to have some problems. So a skeptical attitude, I think is a healthy attitude.
0: You mentioned this story when you were young, where you were buying walnuts. You thought that walnut crackers must be incredibly skilled because you found it very difficult to extract complete walnuts. When did it dawn on you that this was a a selection effect?
1: I discovered that you could buy jars of whole walnuts, shelled walnuts, and I thought that the people who produced these, the manufacturers, the producers of these jars of whole walnut must be particularly skilled, as you say, at cracking them, because whenever I tried to extract a walnut hole, I'd get over the um, nutcrackers, put the walnut in it, gradually, very slowly, progressively increase the pressure, trying just to crack the shell, but not the nut inside, and then crack, and I'd have bits of broken shell and walnut all over the floor. And so I thought they must be really skilled. I could get it right occasionally, maybe one in 10 times. I'd managed to extract the whole walnut from the shell, but most of my efforts just ended up with bits of broken fragments all over the place. But then I discovered that they were no better. The walnut producers were no better than me, but they used the miracle of dark data, if you like, to produce their jars of whole walnuts. What they did was, do exactly the same as me. And one time in 10, they'd get a whole walnut out. The rest of the time, they'd get bits of walnut. And when they got a whole walnut, they'd put it in a jar. And then next time they got a whole walnut, they put it in a jar. When they got the jar full, they'd stick a label on it and say whole walnuts. Mm. All the bits of walnuts would go into another jar labeled walnut pieces. But I have never saw the jars of whole walnuts. So I thought they were
0: absolutely amazing. Right. So I think of that problem as maybe missing rows, whereas when you're thinking about controls and lurking variables, those are like missing columns. I don't know if that framework makes sense, but that's kind of how I think about it, right? There were individual walnuts that just got deleted from the data. Whereas when we're thinking about some of these causal variables or controls, those are like the columns. And you mentioned a couple examples of of those where oftentimes the data is cooked. It's cooked either intentionally or unintentionally. And oftentimes it's because of rewards or incentives. An example that I talk about in my classes here in the U S we rate our hospitals according to certain metrics, like number of years that you survive after surgery for different procedures. And it turns out there was a hospital here in California that had amazing statistics. People lived for decades after heart surgery. So it attracted people from all over the world to go get their, their operations there. Whereas Stanford had horrible results. And of course, what this hospital was doing is it was operating on perfectly healthy people, right? People would come in with broken wrists and they would give them heart surgery. These 20 year old kids, right? Skateboarders. And so their statistics looked fantastic. What was missing was they weren't controlling for the underlying health and age of the people who were getting the surgery.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When you're trying to decide which surgeon you should go to for your operation, you shouldn't just look at their success rate. You should look at the state of the patients that they're taking on. And there are classic examples of this. I came across one hospital where the very senior and most experienced clinician surgeon had a very low success rate, but all the junior, less experienced doctors had much higher success rates. And the reason wasn't that the senior guy was incredibly poor at his job. It was all the difficult cases were passed over to him to handle. So
0: inevitably had a lower success mm-hmm. rate. I think you've been involved in some legal cases. And one of the things that you mentioned is this thing called the prosecutor's fallacy. And I I remember studying this in evidence at law school. And the idea was that, again, it's kind of inferring from the fact after the fact, trying to back out probabilities. What is the probability that this thing could have happened? How often do we see this kind of of error? I mean, this seems to just... Be an example of this idea that coincidences don't happen right and so there must be some reason why for instance some parent has had two children die of sudden infant death
1: yeah that's an interesting question how often i suspect it happens more often than we see it because people aren't aware of it but i think that is true in a lot of these sorts of situations with the sorts of phenomena statistical phenomena i describe in the book I think it's probably much more prevalent than we think. I came across an example of similar sort of thing, regression to the mean, which we mentioned, although we didn't use that name earlier. I came across a a wonderful example in a presentation I was watching. It was to do with how well-being had changed over the course of time between 2007 Mm -hmm. and 2011 across the 27 European Union countries. And it showed on the left-hand side of the graph, in pink, the ones which had improved over that four-year period, and then on the right-hand side, the ones which had deteriorated over that period. But if you looked at it, you found that the ones that had improved had started from a low value, the ones which had deteriorated mm-hmm. and started from a high value. It was almost certainly not a real phenomenon. None of these changes were real. They were just chance due to random variation, inadequate measurements, poor measurement, a lot of measurement error. And I suspect that that phenomenon like the prosecutor's fallacy, is more common than we know. That particular example, I'm always amused by it because I was sitting in this presentation and that graph appeared with pink and blue, pink meaning increased, blue meaning decreased, pink on the left at the lower, blue on the right at the higher, and I almost fell off my chair because it was such a beautiful illustration of this natural phenomenon, nothing to do with what's going on in the real world, just an artifact of the statistics and the
0: data. Right. So the only way to really understand it is to do some kind of counterfactual reasoning, right? Or to look at alternative explanations or what would you expect to happen? One thing that I find fascinating about statistics is that everything is probabilistic. I find it very difficult for people to intuitively grasp the whole concept of a p-value because it really is saying, what is the likelihood that this thing happens due to chance? I think if you survey 100 people, 95% of them will probably explain p-value incorrectly. Do you think that this methodology, the use of p-values is is something that has kind of led us astray? And we talk a lot about p-hacking and you talk about harking. Do you think that once we've set up this method, which is the gold standard in the scientific community, then all of a sudden everybody starts chasing after that metric? And so the metric no longer has the same validity that it used to have back when it was devised in the early days of scientific experimentation.
1: The p-value issue is very topical at the moment. My own view is that there's nothing wrong with the p-value. What's wrong is people misusing it and poor education. I think it's a very valuable tool. There isn't an alternative tool, which does exactly what it wants to do and what it tries to do, and basically what it tries to do is to compare what you observe in the empirical data with what you observe in the world, and say, could this have happened if the world was such and such, some theory? So I think there's nothing wrong with a p value per se, but the way it's often used, I'm sure you're 95% of people getting it wrong, is absolutely right. But I think that's an indictment of statistical education. And of course, yes. There is, I agree with you, far too much emphasis on p-value. A p-value is not the be-all and end-all of a statistical analysis, as too many people seem to think. They throw their data at their statistical analysis, get a p-value, and that's it. If it's significant, great, they report it. Otherwise, it goes into the file drawer and contributes to, you know, the sort of publication bias in science. I think we need more education of sort of the value of broader metrics, but I don't think we should stop teaching the p-value. I think the p-value is a very important tool to answer the question which it was designed to answer.
0: Right. But people have to understand that if there's a 1% chance that you could get this by chance, then you know, you're going to get it with a high degree of probability if you do a hundred different experiments, right? Yeah. And I think there, you
1: need to think very carefully about what you're looking for. If you're looking for whether any one of the hundred things is significant or whether you're looking to see if Lots of them are significant, what precisely the question is, but yes, and there are ways for controlling for
0: the inflation you get if you do lots of tests. Another thing that you talk about is, is survivorship bias. I have a, a lot of experience with this in the world of investments, right? So you will frequently have investment managers talk about how they've, they've done so well. And we also have lots of business people come and speak to our students and talk about how they became successful so people are often misled into thinking that this category of investment managers does better than they do or this category of entrepreneurs does better than they do simply because we celebrate the winners and the losers get dropped out of the data set it seems like there are ways that we can police against this but to some level there are ways that we'll never completely be able to understand unless this was something that was a designed experiment if we're kind of naturally collecting data, it's almost inevitable one would think that you're going to get some kind of survivorship bias.
1: I think there is a risk and that's exactly why people need to be skeptical and say, why have you brought these people to talk to me What about, about the ones who went wrong? Because really that's what you want. You want the continuum from succeed to not succeed and identify what the differentiating factor is, not just the ones who have succeeded because of course, you don't know what led to that success. So yes, I agree with you entirely. You do really need an experimental design where you you balance things, you get people to try certain kind of approach and then people to try another kind of approach and you randomly allocate them to these different things. So I think problems of dark data are less severe in experiments. You can still get missing values and distortions and so on, but a clinical trials example that we used earlier is an illustration. But it's with purely observational data that the real risks and dangers arise where You are just collecting the data as it was generated naturally in the world, because you don't know what you might be missing, data that you might be missing, but also mechanisms that you might be missing, understanding that you might be lacking if it's just collected in the real world, the sort of behaviors that you might be missing. So I think observational data is particularly risky. And it has to be said that the data science revolution we are currently living through is in large part driven by big observational administrative data sets, data sets which arise in the normal practice of everyday life, running a credit card or a retail operation, for example, or a transport company or a hospital or whatever. You're just observing what happens. You're not manipulating or intervening. And in that case, I think the opportunities for distortions are very severe. Now, whether those distortions will impact your conclusions depends what question you're asking, but there is a great
0: risk. Well, I was wondering if you could comment on what you observed during the coronavirus crisis. You're in the UK, and our policymakers, our medical professionals, we're all advocating policies, advocating interventions, advocating remediation and prevention, and it's based on data. It seems to me that we probably could have done a better job of collecting the kind of data that would have helped us to make better decisions. But instead, we kind of relied on data that was generated according to a process that wasn't designed to give us the data that we needed. It was more designed to give data that answered a different set of questions. So for instance, people would talk about test positivity rate, but this was a select group of people who who went in and got tested. I can think of a number of examples, but While this was going on, I think everyone I know who is a data professional was kind of chomping at the bit and a little bit frustrated because we all saw ways that we could probably do better. What were some of the ways that we could have gotten a hold of better data in the last year and a half that we've been going through this?
1: I think that's a a very interesting point and a very interesting example. John Ioannidis described the situation as a data fiasco fairly early on in the situation. I think first, I should say parenthetically that at the beginning, we didn't know what was happening. It's sort of relatively easy now for us to look back and say, if only we'd had these data then, if only we had those, we would have been able to make better decisions. And that's of course a situation where the scientists are in a better position than politicians. We don't have to make decisions. (laughs) They have to say, what are we going to do? They have to jump one way or another. Sometimes I think it's unfair to criticize politicians too much. I'm just glad I didn't have to make any of those decisions. Having said that, I think, yes, it is clear that in some cases we could have earlier on started to collect different kinds of data. But I think in order to be fair, we have to recognize, we all recognize that the biologists, the biochemists have done an amazing job in producing vaccines so quickly, so effectively, understanding the genome of these viruses and and being able to cope with them. Wonderful illustration of the power of science, but I think also we've seen Something analogous to that in data science is not as spoken about as much, but over here in the UK, we have our Office for National Statistics, which is carrying out a national COVID infection survey. billion pounds invested in that survey, really finding out and monitoring what's going on. Very good statistics, and that's true in lots of countries. I'm sure that that amazing piece of science, in some ways it sort of replicates what the biologists have done, although it's less widely spoken about. I have to say that my dark data book appeared on February, was published February last year, 2020, just at the start of the pandemic. So the word COVID pandemic doesn't appear in it, which is a little bit disappointing in some ways. But there were wonderful illustrations of the problems of dark data throughout the pandemic. I can remember a particular case, for instance, May last year, Russia was reporting 50% more COVID infections than the UK, but a ninth as many deaths. One possibility there is that they were using different definitions. So dark data hiding what was going on because, do they mean dying with COVID or of COVID, people with symptoms or symptoms, whatever, people have had a positive test, different ways of defining things, hiding what's going on. Another illustration is where people, the countries, for example, reported a national death rate, 20 people per 100,000 dying of COVID, for example. Well, fine, that tells you something, but we all know that Pandemics, diseases, infectious diseases like this don't uniformly affect people across the country. They occur in hotspots. You might be living in a place which, you know, has 100 people per 100,000 or none per 100,000. So the summary statistics are, again, sort of hiding things. They're dark data in the sense that they're concealing things. And there were many other illustrations. One could write a whole book on dark data in the pandemic. In fact, maybe I should as a sequel, Dark Data 2, The Pandemic or something like that but many examples, many illustrations.
0: I think some of those things you mentioned, they sound like examples of Twyman's law. And I'd never heard of of Twyman's law before, but it seems to say something like, if it's weird, it could well be wrong. And so what I got from Twyman's law was really kind of a principle around sensitivity analysis, right? Like, which things do you really need to kind of dig into? There's things that don't matter that much, whatever, you know, if they're incorrect, big deal. But these are things where this indicates that maybe you should investigate a little deeper into this subset of the data or these numbers. I'd never heard of Twyman's Law. So every time I read a book, I love learning new stuff. But this also seems like you're always going to have oddities in data. Is this then refute the principle that odd things are bound to happen? Because it seems to say that if it's an anomaly and it's odd, it can't be a coincidence. It's got to be something. Let's dig into it. Well,
1: I think exactly as you say, any large data set's bound to have problems. But I think this tells us something about the scientific process. The sort of caricature of the scientific process is that you have a theory, you collect some data, you compare the theory with the data, and if there's a mismatch, there's something wrong with your theory, so you go back and modify it or change it. But the chances are, in fact, there's nothing wrong with your theory. There's something wrong with the data. At least that's my experience, especially if it's Mm -hmm. a a large data set. Talking of large data sets, like you said a few minutes ago, people have this belief that big data, massive data sets, billions of data points, no need to worry. The size of the data will wash all the problems away. What I say is that big data have all the problems of small data and extra problems of their own, because I think they have more opportunities for Glitches to occur and problems to arise.
0: And so, last point in the book, Dark Data, after articulating a lot of the problems, you suggest a number of solutions. You review a lot of the different approaches that can be used to try and remedy the missing data, right? And there's no completely satisfying way to deal with this. It really does require some understanding of how the data is generated. You can't just look at the data set see a bunch of missing cells and use a one-size-fits-all rule, which a lot of people are, are tempted to do. When we teach data science, you know, a lot of the approaches that you talked about are ones that I don't recall being formally taught. Is this an area where we really need to double down and dig into it with a bit more care?
1: I think it is. I recommend that every, for example, master's course in machine learning, data science, statistics, every master's course should have a module on data quality, where these issues are dealt with. I mean, I think it's entirely understandable that we don't spend much time on it at the moment. And after all, if you're teaching regression analysis or neural networks or something like that, you want to focus on the methods themselves. What a regression model is, what the coefficients mean, how you decide which coefficients, which variables to include, same sort of thing for neural networks, what a hidden layer means, how the back crop works and and whatever. You don't want to sort of spend all your time saying, oh. But before you do it, you've got to be sure that the data are like this, they're representative, all these sorts of issues, that we haven't got too much measurement for So it's perfectly understandable that people focus on the techniques, but I think that needs to be qualified by saying, look, you need to be aware of these risks, these potential dangers, which could dramatically mislead you. And so I think the best way to do that is to teach it in a separate course. Later on, once people have got these basic tools under their belt, so now you can give them some distorted data sets and say, right, analyze these data. And when they get ridiculous results, you can say, "Ah, well, you see now the importance, you can see now the importance of looking at these assumptions, checking where your data come from and so on.
0: Well, I don't think it was a coincidence that I stumbled across both of these books. I think this was fate. And I certainly found both of these books to be fascinating. There was a lot in there that was familiar. A lot of them were kind of stories that I've told in my classes, but there was a lot that was new. And in particular, a lot of the taxonomies that you introduce, particularly around the different types of dark data, I found to be very useful. So probability principle, dark data. David Hand, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been fun. Thanks.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at com.